when the people of Jesus follow the way of Jesus, their story will begin to look like his story, which is beautiful, but comes with a cost. We have been going through the book of Acts. We have talked about the Apostle Paul and how he began in the city of Jerusalem and how he traveled all through Asia and into Europe, literally speaking to thousands and thousands of people and convincing people to have saving faith in Jesus. It has not been without some drama. Paul has been in prison already. He's been run out of several cities. He's been stoned and left for dead. He's, he's gone through all sorts of things. And last week's passage, we talked about how Paul and his team of people had returned to Jerusalem and how they had just met up with the first church of Jerusalem and with Pastor James and, and said, uh, hey, we're here. And Pastor James has said, hey, we're all happy to see you, but you should know, Paul, People aren't going to be happy to see you, and you should know that you're famous here, or rather infamous here, and it's not going to go well for you here in Jerusalem. And that brings us to our passage today in Acts chapter 21, verse 27. Now, I'm going to need a little bit of, of help here. So I've got the Apostle Paul. Everybody say hi to the Apostle Paul. Okay. Excellent. Excellent. Well done. And um, we have this picture of Paul going into the Jewish temple. If you want to catch up on, on why, you can listen to last week's message or read the scriptures. But Paul is going into the temple. And we what's, the people who are going to meet him here are some Jews from Asia. That's how the scripture describes them. And if you were here a few weeks ago, these were, these were some Jewish non-believers. They were not Christians, but they were Jews over in Pisidian, Antioch, and Iconium, where they first heard Paul preach, and they said, this man is dangerous. He is preaching against the Jewish law. He is anti-God. He's a bad guy. And so then when Paul left here, they threatened to kill him. When Paul left here, they chased him to Iconium, and then that was where Paul gets stoned, and he gets left for dead. Well, now Paul has traveled down to Jerusalem, and they have followed him. Same people. They're after him. They have followed him here. And so we have these this, this group of people who are, they're devoted Jews, but they are not Christians, and they are committed to stopping Paul no matter what. So here's what happens. Acts chapter 1, verse 27. Some Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul at the temple. They stirred up the whole crowd. And let me just pause there. I need, I need you to be Jews from the province of Asia. Okay, that's, that's you all. Okay, so you're not happy that Paul is here. So can you give me some bad feelings? Yeah, good. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They, you are not happy that he is here. So they stir up the crowd. Go ahead and stir up the crowd. Just stir people up. Like, create some ruckus. Create some ruckus. Okay, keep, keep it going. They stirred up the whole crowd, and they seized him, shouting, Men of Israel, help us. This is the man. Keep shouting. This is because you're mad. This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against our people and against our law and against this place. And besides, they say, he has brought Greeks into the temple and defiled this holy place. Now, this is a big no-no. They said, previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian in the city with Paul and assumed that Paul had brought him into the temple area. So, keep on being mad. And then it says the whole city was aroused. That's the rest of you. The whole city. You're the rest of the city. 
you don't know what's going on, but these Jews over here are mad because somebody's doing something bad in the temple. So you're mad. You get all mad. You get all mad. Yeah. The whole city was aroused and people came running from all directions, seizing Paul. Where are my people running from all directions? <laughs> running from, <laughs> seizing Paul, they dragged him from the temple and dragged him away. And immediately the gates were shut. Verse 31, while they were trying to kill him, news reached the commander of the Roman troops that the whole city of Jerusalem was in an uproar. Give me another uproar. The Roman commander hears about this. Verse 32, he at once took some officers and soldiers and ran down to the crowd. When the rioters saw the commander and his soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. The commander came up and arrested Paul and ordered him to be bound with two chains. Then he asked, who are you and what have you done? Some in the crowd shouted one thing, shout one thing. <laughs> and some shouted another. <laughs> very good, very good. And since the commander could not get at the truth because of the uproar, give me some more uproar. He ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. When Paul reached the steps, the violence of the mob was so great, he had to be carried by the soldiers. The crowd that followed kept shouting, away with him, away with him, away with him. These Jews, they stir everybody up. They make everybody mad. Nobody knows why they're mad. It could be this, it could be that. Some shout one thing, some shout another. Everybody goes crazy. It says the whole city is in uproar. The only thing that prevents Paul from being killed right in that very moment from this out-of-control mob is that a Roman commander who is supposed to be in charge of keeping the peace hears that Jerusalem is not doing well as a whole city, and so he comes with his detachment of 200 soldiers, and he, he, he arrests Paul, and then he says, Who are you? And what have you done? And then he takes Paul into safety, which is prison at this point. All the while, the crowd sh is shouting, away with him, away with him, kill him, let's be done with him. You know, when Jesus was alive as a human on earth, he was a threat too. They wanted him dead too, and eventually they did kill him, as you know. But there are lots of reasons why when Jesus was walking around on earth, they wanted him dead. The Bible tells us that the Jewish leaders were, were jealous of Jesus. They were jealous of his popularity. They were jealous that he had a lot of followers. But I have to think that, it was a very, it, that there was even more to it than that. Do you remember the time when Jesus became angry and he pushed over the tables in the temple and he said, you can't buy and sell here. This is a house of prayer. Do you remember that story? Well, I, I just had to think about what that might have felt like from the perspective of the Jewish religious leaders. You know that one that signed the permission form, giving everybody permission to sell stuff there? You know, when Jesus says, don't do this, this is sinful and this is bad, that Jewish leader is being judged by Jesus, and, you know, that, that couldn't have felt good. I think about the time when Jesus rode on a donkey into Jerusalem. We call it the triumphal entry. And that was Jesus' statement. He was doing all the actions that a king would do when a king would be entering into his city. And so Jesus is claiming his kingship. He's communicating to everybody, I'm in charge here. 
Now, there were a lot of political tensions going on in Jerusalem. Jerusalem was primarily occupied by the Jews, but the Romans came in and and had it as an occupied city. So the Romans had kind of the real government, but they gave the Jews a measure of freedom to practice their religion. And so the Jews were always kind of in tension with the Romans, just trying to keep the peace. And when you read about the Jewish high priests like Caiaphas and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they had a a lot to do with cooperating with the Roman government and just... Kind of compromising here, compromising there, making sure that there was peace. And so anytime there was somebody that came in and said they were a king of something, you had to squash that person because the Jews weren't going to have some random carpenter from Nazareth come in and say he was a king and upset the delicate political balance that they were trying to keep. They were trying to keep this peace. And then Jesus comes along and he calls the religious leaders whitewashed tombs and he says they're hypocrites and just doesn't, doesn't feel good when you get called those things. Jesus wasn't very well liked or tolerated by the unbelieving Jews. Jesus was a threat. And they get madder and madder and madder at Jesus because he's a threat to their way of life. And so here we are now in the book of Acts with the Apostle Paul about 30 years later after the death and resurrection of Jesus. And while Jesus might not be present in bodily form, these Christians, these followers of Jesus, and anyone who believes in Jesus is still a threat. I was talking this week with Corey and Jen Ellison. Corey and Jen are missionaries in Mongolia. They train, they both are, do theological teaching, and they train and equip uh, the, the Mongolian pastors. It's for, uh, all, of the past, all of the churches in Mongolia are all first-generation churches. None of them are older than 20 years old. And, and so their involvement is to, to be training pastors. And I was just talking with them because I'd heard them talk about challenges that they had with uh, not being too public about being Christians. They have to be careful what they say on social media. They can't just come out and say, we're missionaries. They can't say, we're working with the churches. They have to be careful about it. And I said, tell me a little bit about the persecution or about difficulties that you're going through in Mongolia. And Corey said, well, nobody actually goes to jail here. You don't go to jail for being a Christian like you do in some other countries. You don't get fined for being a Christian like you do in other countries. He said, our lives aren't really in danger. He said, we could be kicked out of the country, but he's like, our lives aren't in danger. And he said, mostly, the Mongolian government just makes it difficult. They just make it difficult for us to be here. There's a lot of forms. There's a lot of red tape. There are a lot of barriers. They ask us lots and lots of questions. We have to fill out certain kinds of forms. We can't, it, we can't let it be known that we're here on a religious visa because it really limits what we are allowed to do and how long we can stay. And they said, uh, when, when you're a church, churches have to register with the government. Like, the government's keeping track of all the churches, and they want to know where are the Christian churches. And the government isn't giving out new registrations. They said churches still start, but they have to lie low. And so he said, it's just, it's just kind of difficult. And then he said, the government doesn't want outside money, that would be us, influencing people toward an outside religion. That would be us. So he said, yeah, it's, all, it's all red tape and barriers. The national religion in Mongolia is Buddhism. And Buddhism is deeply ingrained into the culture of how the country functions and what their national holidays are. Uh, Christianity is definitely a, a threat to that. 
The government financially supports Buddhist monasteries and government ceremonies like the holidays and things. Uh, they, they involve worshiping Buddhist entities like worshiping mountains. It's actually part of, you're expected to participate in worship of these Buddhist things as na for national holidays. And so the Mongolian government is Buddhist-friendly and Christian-suspicious. And I think it's interesting that they limit Christianity in the way that they do. Here's why. I think Mongolian Buddhists understand what American Christians often fail to see. And it's that Jesus is a threat. I think Mongolian Buddhists understand what American Christians often fail to see, that Jesus is a threat to the governments of this world. That holding on to nationalism with one hand and Christianity in the other doesn't work. That there's a clashing of kingdoms, that the kingdoms of this world clash with the kingdom of God. Christians are inherently at odds in this world. If you feel like you fit in perfectly here, you're not doing something right in your Christian life because we live in a fallen world and we don't fully fit. Often there's this message that goes around that says, well, church shouldn't be threatening, Christians shouldn't be threatening, we, we want to be a non-threatening environment so people will come. Now, I understand the idea behind that, and we, we don't want to be obnoxious. We don't want to be instigators. We don't want to be ridiculous, right? But I think that maybe this idea of the church not being threatening, and we're so worried about offending people, I think that perhaps this has led to the idea that Christianity is, number one, more than anything else, always about making people comfortable first. I just don't see that in Scripture as our primary calling. I think we have an extreme value for niceness and for comfortability. I actually was talking with somebody the other day who is part of a, she's a curriculum writer for children's ministry curriculum. And she said, I just want to give you a caution about this particular curriculum. She said, in this curriculum, it's, it's really fun and they do a good job. It's very creative, and they present Bible stories in an interesting way, but they don't talk about sin. I said, what do you mean they don't talk about sin? It's like a kind of core basic thing that, like, four-year-olds understand that they sin. You know, like, we get this. And, and she said, yeah, they, they don't talk about it. They don't focus on it at all. They say, God is love, God is love, God is love, but not like, we have a need. And so the whole concept, you wouldn't even catch it if you were just teaching through, through you know, a lesson here or there. But we have this extreme value for making people comfortable that I think is just not in line with what Scripture calls us to do and certainly not in line with the example of Jesus. The struggle that we have here, church, is not a flesh and blood struggle, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil. Mongolian Buddhists know that Jesus is a threat. Let me ask you this. What happens when people feel threatened? They get defensive. What do people do? They act out. They start bullying people, right? They start persecuting people. And this is what has happened throughout Scripture and throughout Christian history. When people feel threatened, 
by the authority of Jesus clashing with the authorities of this world, they react. A martyr is a word for a person who gives up their life for the sake of Jesus and his gospel. When John the Baptist spoke up against King Herod, this would have been, in, you can read about this in the Gospels, it was right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. John the Baptist spoke up against Herod Antipas, and he said, Herod, you're living in sin. You are living in adultery, and that's wrong. Well, Herod was Herod, you know, he's like a king, and he doesn't like this, and since he's a king, he does what he does. And so he has John the Baptist beheaded, and John is killed because of his stand for righteousness. Earlier in the book of Acts, we have the disciple Stephen, who is proclaiming God is going to judge this world, and Jesus is the way to salvation. And as he's doing that, he gets stoned and becomes the first Christian martyr after the resurrection of Jesus. People who gave their lives for the sake of Christ. But this doesn't just happen in the scripture. This idea of people sacrificing their lives for the sake of Christ happens all through church history. There's a story, a historical event that happened about two, with uh, two women named Perpetua and Felicity. This happened in the year 203. So just a little, so not quite 200 years after the time of Jesus. And Perpetua and Felicity were Christian martyrs who lived in the earlier persecution of the Church of Africa. If you remember from earlier in the book of Acts, not only did the disciples uh, bring the gospel up into Asia and Europe, but there are stories earlier in the book of Acts of the gospel going down here into Egypt and into Africa and spreading like wildfire there. And these two women were in Africa in the year 203. Perpetua was a well-educated noblewoman. She made the decision to follow the example of her mother, who was a Christian, even though she knew it meant that she could die, because in those days, in the 200s, there was incredible persecution of Christians ordered by the emperor. Her father was a pagan, but he loved his daughter and was frantic with worry, and he tried to talk her out of her decision to stand for Jesus. He said, you don't, he said, you don't have to tell people that you don't believe in Jesus. Like, just stop, say, just pretend like you don't believe in him anymore. Just say that you're not a Christian, even though, like, secretly you can have that. And she said, no, I can't do that. She's 22 years old, she's married, she's well-educated, she's a high-spirited woman, she has a baby son that she's still nursing at this time. Her father is pleading with her, and Perpetua's answer to him is simple and clear. She points to a water jug, and she asks her father, see that pot lying there? Can you call it by any other name than what it is? Her father said, no, of course not, and, and she said, neither can I call myself by un any other name than what I am, a Christian. So Perpetua is arrested, along with a group of about four others. All the rest were, were enslaved people. She was the, the noblewoman. Perpetua was afraid, and they were all locked up for a, a period of time. And during this horrifying time, she had incredible pain. The, the prisons were overcrowded. They were treated harshly. She had been separated from her nursing baby, Felicity was another young woman who was imprisoned at the same time with Perpetua, and she was in an even difficult spot. She was eight months pregnant. Stifling heat, overcrowded prison, rough handling, eight months pregnant. Life is difficult. Eventually, the court sentencing comes. 
Felicity and Perpetua are called forward. They are examined. They are, they are uh, found guilty. Her father followed into the courtroom and pleads with Perpetua and pleads with the judge. And the judge, out of pity, also tries to get Perpetua to change her mind. Perpetua, will you change your mind on this? Will you denounce Christianity? But she says, no, I will not do that. I can't denounce Jesus for what he did for me. And she, along with the others, are sentenced to be thrown to the wild beasts in the arena. Two days before the execution, Felicity went into labor. The guards made fun of her and her labor pain, saying, if you think you're suffering now, how's it going to be when you face the wild beasts? And Felicity answered them, Right now, I'm the one who is suffering. But in the arena, Jesus, in me, will be suffering for me because I will be suffering for him. She gave birth to a healthy girl who was then adopted by one of the Christian women in the city. And so the Christians went to the arena with joy and determination. The men were sent in first, they were attacked by bears, leopards, and wild boars. The women then were sent in, and they were sent in to face a rabid heifer. They were thrown about and attacked, but they weren't killed. And eventually, after a period of difficulty, the crowd said, that's enough, we've had enough, we're done now. And so they took the women out, and instead put them back in a few moments later to put them back into the arena to face instead the gladiators. While they are waiting for the gladiators to come out, Perpetua lifted her face to Felicity, and she said, stand fast in the faith. And then she turned to the other Christians around and said, and love one another. Do not let our sufferings be a stumbling block to you. Perpetua and Felicity stood side by side and were killed by the sword at Carthage in the Roman province of Asia because they would not renounce their faith in Jesus. There's a book called Fox's Book of Martyrs. It's an old book, a very old book. It was written in 1559 hundreds of years old, written by a man named Fox, who collected stories like the story of Perpetua and Felicity and the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of Christian stories that he heard of Christians who gave their lives because they would not renounce their faith in Jesus. That's what it means to give your life for Christ. And as I was examining these persecutions, I, I think a question that we have to ask is what do we do, though, with the persecutions that don't kill you? What do we do with the persecutions that don't actually end your life? We know what it might look like here to die for Christ, but what does it look like to live for Christ? I have a friend named George. He is in my seminary cohort. That's my little class of about 15 people. 
and George lives in India. He's a pastor there. And every so often, he'll, he'll give us a little bit of an update of life in northern India. It is a place that is unfriendly to Christians in which they experience persecution pretty regularly. George will sometimes, hey, we're just kind of talking about our lives, and George will say, hey, could you just, just pray for my city? Two more pastors were arrested and put in prison today. We just pray for their families. Last year, he was uh, reaching out to us because, uh, because they, they, the government filters the mail, and they don't let the mail, they don't let Christian mail come through. They censor everything. And so he couldn't get any of his seminary books to do his assignments. So he'd order them from Amazon, and, or he would even have other people send them to him, and he just still couldn't get everything. They would stop things and wouldn't let the mail through. And, uh, and he, there's no way he could figure out how to get these books. And so he said, is there anybody who can just photocopy some of these pages for me? I'm, sent, I'm setting up a secure email address, and you can email it to me. And we're kind of like, we think breaking the copyright laws is fine because, like, he paid for it. You know, he just can't get the book. So, uh, and so, like, people literally were photocopying textbooks so that he could get his work done. It's a different, it's a different life, isn't it? And there are some persecutions that don't kill you, but just make life hard, like Cory and Jen in Mongolia. Just red tape, bumps in the road, difficulties that happen. And I think Jesus gives us an understanding of persecution as not just martyrdom. Like, because here in America, we don't have many people who are dying for the Christian faith, like literally getting killed or pursued by people with swords or being stoned to death. We don't, we don't have that much here. But I think that the scriptures give us persecution as a spectrum. Or maybe there is death on one end, but there's also living with suffering for the sake of righteousness. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 10, these words. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you, because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus uses the word persecuted three times in this passage, and it means harassed or oppressed or treated badly. He says, blessed are you when you are doing the right thing, when you're standing up for the right thing, and you take heat for it. You are blessed when because of righteousness, he doesn't give any, if you're doing dumb stuff, it's not covered in the blessing. He's like, you got some consequences there. But if you're doing the right thing and you're suffering because of righteousness, he says, you're blessed because this is the way of the kingdom. It's not just about dying for Jesus, it's also about living for Jesus. Paul gets slandered in this passage. Did you catch that little part of the story where it says, uh, this man, he brought a Greek into the Jewish temple. He br- and it wasn't based on truth. Paul didn't do that at all. Paul knew that would be very offensive. And that wouldn't help any Jews come to believe in Jesus. He didn't do that. But there's, it doesn't even matter what the truth is because the crowd has gone wild and the lies just spread like wildfire. And that's how things go. If you've ever been lied about, you know how things can spread. Rejected, 
chaos. Sometimes your family can reject you because of your faith or because of your position on things. Have you ever taken a stand on something? Maybe you're one of few Christians in your family and you kind of get, you get the cold shoulder because you don't do things how the rest of the family does things. When I was a young adult, I was on a mission trip in southern India. And I went, we were visiting a Bible college there, and it was a bunch of other young adults that were graduating from Bible college. In order to graduate from Bible college, you had to plant three churches. That was the graduation criteria. After you planted three churches, then you could graduate, uh, which was amazing. But, as the, but one of the things that happened while we were there is we witnessed a baptism. And just like here, baptism is a public event. Baptism isn't something you do privately in your bathtub at home. The whole purpose of baptism is a public statement of faith saying, I am a follower of Jesus. And so we witnessed uh, a public baptism in this area that was predominantly Hindu and Buddhist. And these Christians knew that on the day that they were baptized, if their family weren't already also Christians, on that day they were baptized, that was the day their families would disown them. Their baptism meant that their families would turn their backs and never speak to them again. That's what baptism looked like there. That's what it looked like to follow Jesus. Jesus has blessed are you, when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of things against you because of me? Today, around the world, there are 360 million Christians that live in nations with high levels of persecution or discrimination. That means 360 million Christians are living in an environment that is hostile to Christianity. That's one in seven Christians worldwide. Over 5,000 Christians last year that we know of were killed for their faith. Killed, over 5,000 that we know of. In sub-Saharan Africa, it is the epicenter of global Christianity. There are so many Christians there. And yet, now it is also the epicenter of violence against Christians. I've asked Pastor Charles Mutinga if he might come and share with us. Come on up, Pastor Charles. Some of you might remember him from back in 2020 when he was, 2021, when he was with us doing his ministry internship through Calvin Seminary. And uh, we got to know Pastor Charles and his family, who's still in Kenya, even today, while he is here completing his studies. He is a pastor, he is a leader, he is a teacher, and is completing his studies so that he can go back and contribute to the educational formation of others in Kenya. But Pastor Charles has shared with us from time to time about some of the difficulties that they face. And so, uh, Pastor Charles, would you explain a little bit of that for those who have not heard this before and help us understand what it means to be a Christian in Kenya. Thank you. Kenya is uh, in sub-Saharan along the equator. And uh, most of the population are Christians. However, we have uh, many Muslims too. On the northern part of Kenya, that's where, where we have many, many Muslims. 
And the Christians on the northern part of Kenya, they face many persecutions. Um, on 2015, 2nd of April, the extreme Muslims, we shall call them, call them Al-Shabaab, they visited a university, it's called Garissa University, and um, they went to the rooms of the students. And for these Muslims, the ex-Muslims, the Al-Shabaab, to distinguish the Christians and the Muslims, you are taught to say a prayer, a Muslim prayer. And number two, they also told the, the Christians to denounce their Christian faith. Those who did not do that, they were shot dead. On that day, 2nd of April, uh, 2015, 148 Christian students were shot dead. 79 were injured. And uh, 700 were held hostage. They were taken to places where people could not know. Time and again, they attack passengers on buses. When you're on board, uh, sometimes they will force the driver to go off the road, to pull from the road, and they will use the same methodology. The passengers will be told, say a Muslim prayer. You will also be told to denounce your faith in Christ. If you cannot, you are shot dead. They also visit the homes of Christians, and they do the same. So let's keep on praying for them. Pastor Charles, with so many horrible moments, like people are often forced to say, you, they get put on the spot, and they have to say a Muslim prayer, and then that proves that they're okay if they can do that. And then if they're not, then bad things happen. With all, of, with all of that, with that stress, with that tension, with that fear, the threats all the time, what keeps Christians faithful? What keeps them going? I think it is good discipleship that these Christians have hope, the hope in the future, not where we stand, not on this earth, that upon Christ's return, we will be resurrected with the new bodies and we will go to a new home, our heavenly dwelling, where there will be no pain, no death, and where we will live with Christ forever. That hope keeps the Christian going. Thank you. Amen. Thank you. Good discipleship. Good discipleship that says we have hope, not necessarily that we'll be saved in this life. We have hope, not necessarily that there will be a miraculous deliverance, although God could do that if he wants to, and I'm sure has done that from time to time. But good discipleship that says we have hope that what happens in this world isn't all that there is that we were designed for eternity and that there's a whole big life waiting for us afterward. 
hope that faithfulness to Jesus absolutely matters. It's incredible to me. Here's the thing. Jesus changes our relationship with suffering and persecution. That's that point. Jesus changes our relationship with suffering and persecution. So I have three points that go along with this. The first is this. Christians can expect suffering and persecution in this lifetime. We should expect it. Maybe as Americans we don't need to expect that we're going to die. But we should expect difficulty because what it means to live for Jesus is always going to be a threat to this world. We can expect suffering and persecution. We shouldn't be surprised. In fact, if you suffer, if you struggle, if you are insulted, if you go through difficulty because of taking a stand for what is right in this world, you should consider that as normal. That is a normal Christian way to live. Jesus told his disciples in John 15, if the world hates you, keep in mind it hated me first. This kind of makes me laugh. He's like, if, if everybody hates you, don't worry. I, got, I did it first for you. And he said, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.10, he's writing a letter, and he says, you know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, love, patience, endurance, persecutions, sufferings. You know what kinds of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra the persecutions I endured. He says, you, you know my story. Yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. Listen to verse 12. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Jesus Christ will be persecuted. So basically you can expect. If you aren't experiencing some tension and some conflict because of you living righteously for Jesus. Maybe we should examine what's up there. The second point is that Christians can expect to be blessed for their suffering in the life to come. Just like what Pastor Charles said, we have hope for the future. We have hope that the hard times we're going through now matter. I know some of you have held on. You've clung to that truth. You have remained faithful to Jesus. You have held on to doing the right thing. You have persevered and sticking with the straight and narrow path despite the difficulties that it presents because you are living for a hope that is based on a future with Jesus, not a short-sighted view of what feels comfortable today. Christians can expect to be blessed for their suffering in the life to come. Jesus says in Luke 6, Blessed are you, when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Some of you have been told you are a bad person because of your position for Christ. You are bad for standing for Christ. Or what's more common, I think, in our culture today, you're, you're dumb for your perspective. You're dumb for holding on to those values that you have, those Christian values. Jesus says, when that happens to you, verse 23, rejoice in that day and leap for joy because great is your reward in heaven. Revelation 20 paints this picture of 
John the Revelator says, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus and because of the word of God. And he says, blessed and holy are they. We are built for another life. And finally, number three, Christians can find meaning in sharing Christ's sufferings. Paul says in Philippians 3, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. Now, I read that passage, church, and I say, I want to know Christ. And I'm like, yes, I want to know Christ too. Paul says, and I want to know the power of his resurrection. And I say, yes, I want to know the power of his resurrection. And then it says, and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. And I say, no, I don't want that part. Paul says, I, I want to know the fellowship of suffering with Jesus. He says, there's no greater honor. The fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. He says there's no greater honor than to suffer like Jesus did. In fact, when the apostle Peter, he ended the, we don't know this in scripture, but church tradition tells us that the apostle Peter was also martyred because of his testimony for Jesus, and they were going to crucify him just like Jesus was crucified. And he said, I am not worthy to be crucified like my Savior was. Crucify me upside down instead, because I cannot, I'm not worthy to be crucified like Jesus was. And so that's how he died. There is a connection, a deeper connection that we have with God when we go through hard times because of standing for righteousness. There's a, there's a deeper connection, a deeper opportunity to be in a unique, a unique fellowship with God that the average person won't understand. There's a beautiful moment if you can recognize, I'm not alone in this, I'm, I'm simply suffering like Jesus did. The writer of Hebrews talks about people who have held on to their faith, held on to their faith in Jesus despite hard times, held on to their faith in Jesus despite going years and decades and sometimes even their lifetime without seeing the fulfillment of everything that God has promised to do in this world. And Hebrews chapter 11 talks about people who have persevered and held on to being righteous and doing the right thing, even though the rewards for that did not come to them in this life. And the passage says, pay attention to Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. There were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. 
They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. They were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received at that time what had been promised, since God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, and in church maybe I can add in there the witnesses of Pastor Charles, the witness of Corey and Jen Ellison in Mongolia who are there right now, the witness of Perpetua and Felicity from 2,000 years ago who are still testifying to us today. The witness of my friend George in northern India. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let's throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles us. And let us run with perseverance, the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Consider him who endured such opposition. Opposition from sinners, no less. Opposition in the breaking of his body and the shedding of his blood. Consider him so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. And the thing about the Christian faith is that it wasn't that Jesus went through all the hard stuff and then said, okay, now you're in heaven. He said, no, take up your cross and follow me, and heaven is coming. We hold on to that hope. 